Hi, my name is Rhonda Carlson. Our first reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The word of the Lord. Good morning, I'm Dean Miller, and delighted again to be with you and have a chance to open up God's word together. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we again just remind ourselves what we just sang. That blessed is your name, holy is your name, Worthy is your name, worthy of you of all the praise and honor and glory that we could possibly give you. We come and offer you these lives that you've given to us. We offer them back in thanksgiving. We offer them back perhaps in heartache this morning. We offer them back in need and in joy, in song and in prayer. And now as we come to try to understand this beautiful diamond, your word that you've given us to study for thousands of years, and we come like our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing the same thing and ask you in the amazing ways you do to speak to us, too, here in Vienna this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome. If you're here as a guest, we're delighted to have you. And if you have a Bible, you might want to open it to Matthew 6, the passage you just heard Byron read. We are finishing a series this morning on the Lord's Prayer, a series we've been in since mid-April. And it's been a really rich time for me. I've been uh, really blessed by being in it. And I was given a lovely anecdote this morning by uh, the Hayes family. So how many of you are Jeopardy fans? Are you aware of the Lord's Prayer on Jeopardy in the last few days? Some of you are nodding along. So, so uh, this week, one of the $200 questions, the cheapo, easy questions into Jeopardy, was finish this line um, from blank, be thy name. Right? So our Father who art in heaven blank be thy name, and they couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. There's all kinds, boy, there's a sermon there. I, we're not doing that sermon this morning, but there's a sermon there. Um, who could do that? Our Father art in heaven. 200 bucks. Done. So glad. It's one of my favorite of these lines. So this sermon series isn't just about this morning. It's not just about sitting here. It's about jeopardy and your life, and as we exit the church this morning as well. Um, and if I was going to ask you to consider your life with Jesus, let's say I was a neighbor or a friend 
who wasn't a Christian or someone at your work, and I said, can you help me understand, do you have a metaphor you could use to help me understand what life with Jesus is like? Could you have some sort of illustrative way you could help me understand what this thing you call Christianity is? What kind of biblical metaphors might you use? You could think about, it's a race, right? Paul uses that a lot in the New Testament. The, the life with Jesus is like a race. Or you could use like a feast, right? Because that covers really like Genesis to Revelation. That's the whole thing. We celebrate a feast every Sunday. It could be a garden, right? Like particularly the parable of the soil and the seeds that Jesus tells that all the gospels come and get, tell again and again. Sower came, so do seeds among the soil. It could be about a garden. And this morning we're going to consider the last line of the Lord's Prayer and another metaphor, this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll talk about that metaphor, and particularly again, what that metaphor can, can do to help guide us into this life with Jesus. We want to understand it and then allow it to guide us in what it means for us to be a Christian, not just here at, from, at 10 o'clock, but on Tuesday at 3 and Thursday at, at 9 a.m., so first, let's just look at this line in particular. First of all, why is this line in our prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer at communion, you'll hear it, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. But it wasn't in the verses that you just heard read. Anybody catch that? Or during the series, anybody want to finish the prayers you've heard the Matthew 6 passage read? You may have noticed this hasn't been in some of these readings. And that's because it's, this line is in some of the translations that we have, but not others. It's for sure in the Book of Common Prayer that's been passed down for over 500 years. And it really depends on the translations you use to, to craft the Bible that you have, that we have. Now we can go all the way back to the first century AD and find uses of this prayer with that line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Particularly in something called the Didache, which is a guide to worship we have from 90 AD, and they have the Lord's Prayer in there, and this line is in that, line, or in that prayer. And in that guide. And so it comes back to sort of the Bible you have and the guys who are translating, if they had source documents that had that line, then they kept doing it. Particularly the Protestant editions of Bibles we have use that line. So it's a historical line, even if it isn't necessarily in the translation we use this morning, which is the English Standard Version. It's also a biblical line. It actually comes from the Old Testament. It's a prayer of David in 2 Chronicles 29, where he's given God glory as he's finished the temple and offering God really his life and all that's, that he's done with his life, and actually not the temple, but the money for the temple. He's really offering himself to God. So this line, again, is biblical and historical, even if it's not in the version we have. Which begs again that question, then why is it there? It's the second time you and I have heard this word kingdom in the Lord's Prayer, right? It's first in the beginning in those first lines, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Here it is again. And for us in America, it can be a bit odd, right? Because we don't have a monarchy. We don't think about kings that often in our context, unless it's England, probably because we watch the crown. <laughs> but if you read the Bible, you see the kingdom, both literally and figuratively, is everywhere. There's the literal kingdoms of David and Solomon and all the kings we studied in the winter. And there's this use of this idea of the kingdom as a metaphor for what God's gonna do, for what Israel's to be, what the Messiah's gonna do. This is Isaiah 9, a passage we most often hear during Christmas. 
For unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, etc., etc. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. This little baby we celebrate during Advent is going to be a king. You heard it in the Revelation 1 passage that was read. This idea again that we are part of a kingdom. We are made into a kingdom. That's what John says to the readers of Revelation. To those of you listening and reading my letter, my encyclical, we are partners together because Jesus and God made us into a kingdom. Again, it's not just in those texts. It's all over the New Testament. 155 uses in the New Testament alone. All four Gospels, Acts, Romans and Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians, that's Paul. Revelation, that's John. Peter and James both use the phrase. The writer of Hebrews uses the phrase. And it's used the most in the New Testament in the book of Matthew. Our book for Matthew 6. Matthew, a Jewish tax collector and follower of Jesus, someone who grew up with this deep understanding that Israel had is that we are a kingdom set aside, a unique means of God's grace for the world to save the world as a different sacred kingdom. This Israel's to be a foreshadowing of the new heaven and the new earth. Matthew in particular heard those words of Jesus and made sure in his gospel he recorded them for us. He understood this awareness that Israel was again set up as the Latin phrase contramundum often covers, against the world, set apart from the world. And in Matthew, Jesus has proclaimed this phrase again and again. Repent for the garden is at hand, the feast is at hand. No, the kingdom is at hand. This promise of Isaiah, Isaiah 9. Remember that little baby, that messianic miracle? That's now. You can see why it would have been revolutionary for Jesus to use this phrase. He says it in Matthew 3. He says it in Matthew 4. He says it as he's wandering Galilee and he's starting to kind of ruffle the feathers of the religious establishment. And he's saying it like good news, like a celebration. Even with the exhortation to repent, it's joyful. Repent, the kingdom of heaven, this long-awaited kingdom is at hand. Then in Matthew 5, which is the, the Sermon on the Mount, where it begins and where our chapter, Matthew 6, is a part of that long sermon, Jesus is defining just what that kingdom will look like. And it's frankly a little surprising. We often call it the upside-down kingdom because it's not what you and I expect in a kingdom. Blessed in this kingdom are the poor in spirit. Wait a minute. Not blessed are those with cool horses and big broadswords. Blessed are those with castles. Blessed are those with dragons. That's the kind of kingdom I'd get excited about, would understand. No, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus unpacks that over and over again, chapter 5, chapter 6. At the end of chapter 6, just a few verses after our text, he says this, seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's so important you should devote your life to it. So us praying this prayer is stepping into all that chorus of the New Testament and the words of Jesus as he's teaching us. Remember again, he's teaching us this prayer. We are being taught by the king to use the phrase kingdom in our prayer because this kingdom is happening. It's gonna be inaugurated. It's gonna be revolutionary and you and I are gonna be a part of it. Raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus. You're in the kingdom of heaven. 
You're a child of the king, citizen of the kingdom of heaven, sent here to represent that kingdom on earth. That's, again, what the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us that he will do in us to produce. So that's why the line's in here. What do we learn from this line about God's kingdom? First, we learn about God's kingdom in time. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory just this week. Or just when things are going easy. Or just when America's on the ascendance or Britain's on the ascendance or Germany's on the ascendance. Or no, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Jesus come in the flesh. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus resurrected and ascended. It takes us back Again, to the gospel story, this lens we use over and over again to remind ourselves we are part of a story that's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Jesus is the king over all those seasons. And you and I are living between redemption and restoration. That's the season we've been placed in in church history. And in that season, Jesus is not just our king. He's the king. Everyone on heaven and earth will proclaim his name. This is a scholar named Peter Lightheart. But the gospel is fundamentally the announcement of the coming kingdom, the proclamation that the Father has set his Son at his right hand. Jesus is world ruler, the heir of ancient empire, the son of David and new Solomon, the greater Cyrus, the Lord, the Son of God, and the Savior. The resurrected Jesus of Nazareth is quite literally the king over all creation. It is done already. This kingdom is alive. It's happening. You and I are in it now, not just hoping for it. We're living in it now as we wait for the full restoration of Jesus' reign when he returns. We noted that last week in the line about evil and temptation, that God has placed us on this earth to live and thrive now, represent heaven here while we anticipate the final tomorrow. So this timeline is really important because sometimes it's hard to see the kingdom at work. So we pray every week, wait, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, even if you and I can't see it. So first we learn about the kingdom and time. Then we learn about God's kingdom and other kingdoms. Jesus is the king and God's kingdom is the kingdom over all kingdoms. But in that, there's a subtle reminder that as we learned last week, there's another kingdom. It's a minor kingdom. It's already been defeated But in its death breaths, it wants to take out as many of us as it can. There is the kingdom of heaven in Jesus. And then again, there is an opponent, the evil one, as we looked at last week. Satan, the opponent, that's what it means. Now, Paul helps us understand who is in the other kingdom in Ephesians 6. Many of us have probably heard this verse. For our struggle... Another way to say that might be for our fight against the opponent's kingdom is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Ooh, that sounds pretty serious. Authorities, rulers, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. I need to put on armor and I'm going to have to stand my ground. That opponent sounds for real. But 
Again, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. There's an opponent behind what you and I see. Again, remember from the Jesus in time, even though you and I can't see God in some ways, Jesus is the king, he's still the king forever and ever. And some of the reason we can't see it is because guess what? The fight's happening in the unseen realms. Of course we can't see it. You and I can't see into the unseen realms that often. Sometimes we're given a window into that a little bit. There's stories of that. But the opponent uses means. Remember we quoted that phrase a few weeks ago, Luther, about bread, that God works through means. The farmer and the driver who brings the bread to your store and the, the clerk who stocks the bread on your shelf that you then bring home for daily bread. The evil one can use means too. And we said last week, like Ephesians, there's the world, the flesh, and the devil that are the means available to God or to the evil one. So you and I all could be used by the world because of our flesh and our opponent. Those who don't know Jesus well or don't know Jesus at all or who defy Jesus also can be used by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Doesn't mean they're the opponent. Does mean they can be the tool of the opponent. And again, I could be the tool of the opponent too. I could be a jerk to somebody today and objectify them and not treat them well. I could go out and steal something from somebody today and then I'm a tool of the opponent even though I follow Jesus. But because of the king, who is the king forever, and because I've been saved, because you've been saved, we do fight and we do struggle together on his behalf because there are wrongs worth righting in the world. And we've been called in to be this people. And so we're not going to be taken lightly. We're going to push against the darkness. Why? Because our king is the light and life. And he's worthy of all praise. And he's already won. And he's enlisted us in the battle. And to be fully human is to be with him fighting for him. So that begs a second set of questions, much like it did last week. How then can you and I serve the king? How can we live as his kingdom while we are away from home? Because guess what? You and I are not home yet. If you felt a longing unmet or dissatisfaction or a sense that this world doesn't make sense, it's because it's not your home. You're here on mission to be king, the heaven, heaven citizen here. Now, God's kingdom is a holistic kingdom, as we read and heard from Peter Lightheart, for the whole world. The temptation is to make it just for you and me as individuals. Super great for me. I'm a part of the king. But guess what? Jesus died for systems and for people and for public life and things we call the common good. Jesus' death begs our involvement in the world. While not a political kingdom in the way you and I often consider it or hear about it on the news, the gospel kingdom we are a part of goes into politics through God's people. It also goes into finance and to medicine and to marketing and engineering and into real estate and accounting and sports management and teaching and neighboring and parenting and God-parenting in every corner of the world because the king is the king of all creation and he loves his kingdom. And throughout church history, as we have gone into the world and pushed back the darkness, there can be a sense that the weight in the battle were winning. And there could be a sense that, ooh, maybe we're taking a few more casualties than we want. Maybe the darkness is winning. Maybe our muscles are tired. And my guess right now is most of us in here could feel like the darkness might be pushing a little harder than you can push back. And that this line, this 
not even translated in every translation line, but biblical line, historical line, super important line, I think is really important for us because of that. Because we get to live on behalf of the king, and I think probably many of us feel like, I'm up for that, but I think if I live on behalf of the king, I could be seen as reprehensible. I could, I could be seen as, as the enemy for people in my work or school or family. How can we do that? How can this line help us do that, this prayer? I want to give two big ways. First, we have to remember how the king sees others, who our opponent is. Frankly, how the king sees us. The king, when he looks at humanity, sees people his father loves and are, who are worth saving. And the king went and died on behalf of the world. The way of the king, the way of the upside down kingdom is to love your Samaritan neighbors. Raise your hand if you think you can do that on your flesh or that would be a rule in your kingdom if you made your own. It wouldn't be a rule in my kingdom. Love my Samaritan neighbors, the people who we historically hated, the people who have reason to hate, the people who the entire subculture we live in says are my enemy and who look at me as an enemy and want to do me harm and wrong. That's a little too upside down for me. Thank you, Jesus, very much. And then he gets even clearer. Oh, by the way, love your enemies. That's how my kingdom rolls. Well, great. Thanks for being clear about that. I can't dodge it now. You mean even those who I don't treat as my enemy but see me as that, their enemy, that's what I'm supposed to do? Yes. Why? Because that's how our king lived. And we serve the king. And we know who our opponents really are. And we'll do what we can to, to give help to the unseen because we're frail, finite, and apt to faint. But God said, hey, I need your help on the unseen and the seen. How does the king see us and others worthy of his death? So is our opponent the person that's older than us or younger than us? Is our opponent the person of another color than us? Is our opponent someone who disagrees about the grand story we're in or whether it's their own personal story? Is our opponent people who did or didn't like the vaccine? Is our opponent people who did or didn't vote for Biden or Trump or who might or might not? Is our opponent, are our opponent people in the LGBTQ community? Not according to Paul. That's not where our struggle is. They can be used, they can be means, means of grace, means of the evil one, just like you and me. So we'll push back, but we'll treat them in a different way because we're not gonna demonize them because the king doesn't demonize them. So how dare we? It's not easy though, right? How do we honor the king? Fight the good fight and not hate other humans who might hate us. How do we hold to the truth in the face of people who say you are the problem in this society? Your faith, what you hold most dear, is terrible and a harm to other people. It might mean we're rejected. It might mean we're called names like unloving or judgmental. They might, you might be seen as a threat. People might not want to be your friend anymore. Might mean fights over a Thanksgiving table. But see, Israel was sent as contramundum on behalf of the world. You're set apart on behalf of the world. The new Israel, which is what you and I are part of, this new kingdom, is contramundum 
on behalf of the world. We're set apart for you because we're wooing, inviting, earnestly begging you to come get a part of the story that we know we're a part of. And it couldn't be better. We know you'll never know true life if, unless you do this. Because we were just like you. Only thing different is that we have surrendered to Jesus. So first, we have to remember how the king sees others. Second, then we can honor the king by using the ways, the different ways of the king. We are to be bold, to share the gospel in the world. We can't pull back. It's the rare people in church history who've been called as a vocation to withdraw on behalf of the king and kingdom. Rare. Super important people. We want people like that praying on the watchtowers around the world. But most of us are not called to that. Most of us have to get, with all due respect, a little braver. But there are different ways to approach being the, on behalf of the king in the world. A couple different ways. I just listed six on the next slide. There's the testimonial approach to the, to the world. There's living out the kingdom of heaven with your testimony, like the blind man in John. Here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. Make you uncomfortable, feel confronted by that, don't like it, oh well, I was blind and now I see. That's my testimony. There's a hospitality approach. Matthew, who wrote the book we've been quoting from, was a tax collector. Some New Testament scholars say that tax collectors were seen as the pimps of Israel. And what did Matthew do after Jesus said, come follow me? He invited the other tax collectors to a meal with Jesus. He threw a tax collector party so they would know Jesus. That was the way, the approach, the kingdom of heaven worked through Matthew because now he had a testimony and he wanted his friends who were also pimps of Israel to meet Jesus too. There's the intellectual approach to bringing the kingdom of heaven. Paul, of course, everywhere, but particularly in Athens, we have this argumentation as he stands on the Acropolis in Athens. Using his mind. There's a confrontational approach. Peter in Acts saying to the, Sanhed- the Sadducees and the Pharisees, hey, you killed this man who was the Messiah. He's saying it in the temple, the very temple where he denied Jesus a few weeks before. Couldn't be more confrontational than that. He will not be seen as a joyful part of society. He will be seen as a harm to the people. He will be seen as reprehensible, but he's still doing it. There's a the service approach. A woman named Dorcas in Acts 9 shares the kingdom of heaven through the way she serves in her community. There's my personal favorite approach. There's the gospel narrative approach. We are a part of a bigger story and most of the stories that we hear in the world are just missing the big story they're a part of. They're telling you a story that will not be true. Which I believe is Jesus with Nicodemus. In John 3 when he's unpacking for this religious leader In Israel, what the real gospel story is, is the Messiah is sitting with him in a living room. Oh, it feels like the darkness is pushing hard. And oh, it's tempting to despair. Just in the last few weeks, I've heard stories from some friends of other parts of North America of people using God's approaches to be the kingdom of heaven. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was invited to be the lead speaker at a national prayer breakfast where the leader of the country was going to be there. And this is a woman who has a testimony, and she's going to bring another kind of approach, which is the blessing approach. She's going to stand up and bless people, and she's very good at inviting the Holy Spirit into being in that event while she's there. 
So she had literally people all over her country praying for hours, probably 24 hours before she got up. She had a team of people who were intercessors who came and prayed and anointed every chair in the hotel room where the conference was gonna be. She got up and spoke. She invited the Holy Spirit. She said, I bet people here would like people to pray. We have people here who will pray for you. Doesn't matter what, it was a political event. Doesn't matter what politics you're a part of, what party you're a part of. We would just like to pray for you. People came up to be prayed for who did not vote the same way but needed the kingdom of heaven. She had somebody say, someone who probably would not vote the way she votes. Boy, I really needed this this morning. I bet you did. I bet you need it tomorrow too. Another story we heard friends of ours, other part of the country. Public school, young kids, school library. Bunch of books brought in by the administration that are utterly inappropriate to the king. Would not honor the king or what he believes about these children. Books that present a kingdom and a narrative that would be offensive to the king. And as the king's follower, the king's citizen, several of the families were faced with what do we do in this public school? We know how we'll be seen. Rude, ignorant, again, reprehensible. Could mean we're thrown out of this playgroup or that playgroup. Could mean we're canceled. But we're, we're children of the king. So they were confrontational and intellectual in a super generous, gracious way, the way Jesus would, that treated the people who might see them as the enemy, as people created in the image of God. Now that story's not done, but they represented the kingdom of heaven the right way. My guess is most of us like all the other ways than the confrontational way. My guess is we're probably all gonna have to get better at it, together. Even more specific to drill it right down to this month in our country. The ways of the king, I believe, shed light on how June is now positioned in our nation's calendar. And didn't you come to church just to hear somebody talk about this? It's super important. It's stuff we have to talk about. And we need to talk about it with Jesus' lens and how to consider and respond to it. The way of the opponent from Genesis is to appeal to you to make your story your story. Find your desire, what you want, and live it out. That's the way to being fully human. Scholars, some scholars call that expressive individualism. That's the ideology of the day. To be authentic, you need to find your individual desire and live it out. Now, the way of the king is the way of humility. All the way to death on a cross. Again, it's the upside-down kingdom. It makes no sense but for heaven. And what we believe is to be fully alive is to be in relationship to the Father. That's what this series has been. And to be in relationship in community. That the hinge of depth of intimacy with God and full life is that hinge in the prayer and the hinge in the Garden of Gethsemane. Thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Not just my individual desires, Lord, but your desires, because I believe I'm part of your story. And I'm a part of the king's kingdom. But what that means is any concerns or conclusions or resistance to how this month, Pride Month, is positioned in our world, it's not a question about some of the downstream things about sexuality 
Just like it wouldn't be if this month was positioned as a Pride Month about greed. Or Pride Month about stealing. I want what I want. My individual desire, how I feel most alive, is to have whatever I want when I want it. And so I'm going to steal my way to it. And that is what this month is about. We would go, that seems crazy. Because the downstream is impacted by the deeper rooting of the upstream. Which again, in this sense, is this idea of pride and pride month. Now, if I was taking a testimonial approach to addressing pride with friends, I would say what I believe is pride is the root of all sin, in the words of C.S. Lewis. And I spend time with God every day asking God to help me not live according to my pride, because I'm not going to love God, myself, or my neighbor well if I do. And it would cause me, if I lived according to my pride, to sin against you. But God, is, Jesus has saved me for that. So I have a testimony about that. If I was going to take the intellectual and hospitality approach, I might say, my king, my king died for the world. My king died for everyone marching in a pride parade this month. Your king. If you raise your hand when I ask you if you're a follower of Jesus. Your king died for everyone marching in a pride parade this month. How big should our hearts be towards people who disagree with us and might see us as the enemy, which you and I are not? Jesus died for them. They're not my opponent. My king king gave up his pride to submit to his father, and I believe he shows me the fullest way to life. So I can't celebrate a month that's pride month Because it's not the life of my king. It doesn't matter the downstream invitation to what I should do if I'm making pride the king on my throne. But if Jesus is on the throne for me, no, I I can't do a pride month. I can't get excited about it. Now, following him might require me an approach that's confrontational in that way as I seek to be humble. But what I believe is everybody who would disagree with me is created in the image of the Lord and they may not know the story that we believe we're a part of. Which of course, if you know me now, would know that's how I'd finish. The approach is the overarching narrative approach. We believe we're in God's story, not our own. And being fully alive is to be a part of that story. We're set apart for the world. And we, my wife and I, have a lot of friends whose Pride Month would play down maybe in some of the sexual agenda you'd hear. And almost without fail, when those folks run aground, and they often do, run aground, hit the wall of what that lifestyle is like, what they say is, several of them say audibly, I heard God say to me, I have more for you than this. Which is just them saying, I lived according to my life, and the gospel narrative is bigger. And as Jesus pursuing them so desperately and passionately, he'll just say, hey, guess what? Follow the king. The kingdom is bigger. And you and I should be able to, to hear that and go, that was my story too. I followed my own story. And then Jesus called me out of that story to follow the king and be a part of the kingdom of heaven. I've been thinking a lot this summer about Paul's, one of Paul's other phrases in Romans, which is that you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And I was with a friend recently, sort of a spiritual father, a few weeks ago, and we were talking about 
some, he's a part of some um, think tanks here in the area and they're trying to dialogue about some of these themes. What's it mean to be the church, to be Christians in the world? And he said, I'm kind of done with people who just diagnose, we're all polarized. He's like, I get it. He said, I'm looking for people who are creatively coming up with the response to being polarized. And, and I believe one of them is, are these ways with people who have been given the ministry of reconciliation? I believe the response of the kingdom of heaven is you and me. It's not enough to say we're polarized. We've always been polarized as sinners. It's what we do. But we've, we've been invited into this packed full of dynamite prayer. And this, I, hope, I hope you pray it cautiously from now on, now that we've prayed it for several months, weeks. But this amazing prayer that is to take you and I and give you a mission of heaven on behalf of the king. So what I'd like to do to close is I'd like us just to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And I'm just going to pray it slowly. We'll pray it twice today. We'll pray it here, and we'll pray it during communion. Some of you, if you're able, might want to pray it on your knees as you think about the world and how you and I are placed in it on behalf of the King. Some of you might just want to be quiet and let me pray it over you. Let's pray. Join me if you'd like. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.